Well, next Sunday is first Sunday in Advent, and we'll have uh, Advent readers each Sunday during the next four weeks. And I would like to ask some of you to be Advent readers during this time. So I'll be bringing some readings around prior to, the week prior to, each week as um, we have these readings. And maybe on the first, or on the Sunday before Christmas, we might be having a special service here at the church. We'll be working on that. That's possibly the children's program that uh, we hope to get put together. And so uh, lots of good things to look forward to during the Christmas time uh, here at the church. Today I'd like to look at what is the third letter to the churches, in, in the order at least. The letter to Pergamum, I usually pronounce it Pergama. Some uh, pronounce it Pergama. Either way is all right, I'm sure. And so what I want to look at today in this letter is a church that has become a compromising church. Now they live in, lived in a very um, idol-filled area, and there was a lot of pressures around the church at Pergama to conform to the norms and practices of the people in the area that they were living. And so when a lot of practices of the worshipers to idols and other kinds of things became uh, saturated in that area, then this church had a lot of pressure to, in a sense, go along with the rest of the people there. And we don't want to see compromising churches. We don't want to be a compromising church. And so let's read this letter to the church at Pergamon. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamon. The one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak, to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have also had those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and Fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna, 
I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, which is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know, we often hear the words conservative and liberal thrown around as a description of churches. Some churches will say, well, they're, they are a conservative church. And then maybe some other churches will shake our heads and say occasionally, they are a liberal church. And I'm not sure that, that we always have a very good idea of what we're talking about when we say conservative or liberal. Sometimes I think conservative is thought of as a very narrow, focused, and strictly biblical-based belief and doctrine that's holding to the authority of the word. To me, that encompasses a lot of the meaning of conservative church. I actually believe here at Oakdale we would be more in this line of being a conservative church. And then the, perhaps the definition of liberal is that a liberal church is more open and accepting of the views and ideas of other religions, including an accepting of a variant of beliefs. And so liberals sometimes are involved in ecumenical types of work. And some of that I can go along with as long as we don't compromise our own beliefs and values. I had some question years ago about our participation in the World Council of Churches. I was concerned about the grouping of the World Council of Churches and how often we might be laying down our conservative values for the sake of being unified. Now I'm going to try to give some explanation as how a church becomes liberal. I believe very few churches make a conscious decision, well, let's change and become more liberal. I'm, I don't think they actually do that, but they tend to subtly conform to what is around them, and that can be very dangerous. The word blended often makes us think of some good things. I like things that are blended together, especially when you're talking about foods. Now, I was eating a bowl of chili last night that my wife made the day before. And all, I think chili's better off uh, the second or third day than it is the first day. And so I ate one bowl of the chili, and I thought that was pretty good. And so I went back and got a second bowl of the chili. And I had to compliment Christy. I said, you made a very good bowl of chili. And, of course, the... What I usually say afterwards about something good she makes, it's just like Grandma used to make. You, you remember that Grandma always has the best stuff. That's for sure. No matter what you're talking about, if Grandma made it, you want it just like Grandma used to make. So blending together the pinch of this and the teaspoon of that, and we were watching a cooking show on the TV, and I was just noticing how this cook was adding little, little tiny bits of stuff to a, a great big pot. And I wondered, how does that little tiny bit 
affect the whole great big pot. Well, sometimes how it gets all mixed up with everything there. One area where blending is not very good is when churches seek to blend together our beliefs and values and practices with other churches to the extent that we can lose even our identity as a church ourselves as we get mixed up with everyone else. It's not long then until a church can start compromising on the values that they have in order to fit together. Let, her, let me introduce another word to you that I've heard before, and that is pluralism. Pluralism is the attempt to bring religious, ethnic, racial, racial groups together as a common community. And that sounds very good on a superficial level. Ecumenical groups seem good, especially maybe along holidays and special occasions when all the churches of maybe the community can get together and have a united worship service. And I'm not against that at all. I think that can be a very good exercise. <clears throat> but it only gets us in trouble when we attempt to merge controversial ideas and views and even contradictory types of views within the church. Many Christians might endorse a pluralistic approach without even knowing the dangers of mixing up the various beliefs and traditions. To say that everyone's going to the same place but on different roads is not accurate. It sounds good, but it's not biblical. To say that everyone's going the same place but only on different roads is not biblical. The Bible says that Jesus is the only name by which a person can be saved. And none else, none else. Pergamma dwelt in a satanic place. The strong words here in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. I wouldn't want to live near Satan's throne, I don't believe. But this is the designation that Jesus gives to Pergamma, the city, where Satan's throne is. Pergamma had many temples to false gods, Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, others that I can't even pronounce or say. These Christians were living in a hostile environment and they were trying, I'm sure, to maintain and to hold on to the truth of Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus describes himself dramatically at the beginning of this letter. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And in some places here in Revelation, it says that Jesus has a double-edged sword protruding from his mouth and that he is essentially is speaking the word of God. Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. 
you see that Christ is a strong conqueror and also Christ is a strong judge of the Christians. Note the deeds of the church, even in a challenging place. Christ is always aware of what we're doing wherever we are. We can be in a challenging place, but here he says to them in a positive way, a commendable way, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Have you ever been in a place where you felt it could be kind of challenging to even mention that you were a Christian? Certain groups, maybe, that we interact with? It would seem that Satan had sort of a dominion over Pergama in some way. Satan has a kingdom on this earth, and he is present on the earth. You know, Satan is not in eternal hell yet. He will be at one time when the time is right. He will be cast into the bottomless pit. Satan can concentrate on certain areas. I've saw took note of cities in our country that I wondered if Satan hadn't zeroed in on that particular city. We think of Las Vegas sometimes. And Christy and I made a trip to Las Vegas and it was not a vacation, it was more of a working trip, supposedly. Of course, we engaged in some of the activities around Las Vegas but most of what we saw there was sin-filled. People thrusting uh, material in your hands even while you're walking up and down the street and just trying to uh, lure you in. And if it, there's a city in the United States I thought could be a seat of Satan, I think it would be Las Vegas. Now they've tried to make it more family-friendly. I don't know for sure how they could do that in Las Vegas. I doubt if we'll ever go back to Las Vegas. And that's all right. It is thought that Satan had centered on Babylon up through the Old Testament, especially. And that you might say his seat on the earth was Babylon at that time. But Babylon began to subside in its um, presence and its uh, influence to where it wasn't what it once was. And so it is thought by some scholars that Satan then uh, changed his concentration from Babylon to this area of Pergama, especially given this scripture here, where Satan's throne is. I would shudder to think that Satan would concentrate on any area where I lived I sure wouldn't want to think that he was concentrating on an area around here close, but one consolation that I have is that greater is he that's within me than he is within the world. So let him concentrate where he wants to. He's not going to affect me. This church had a lot of diligence, and it seems like um, they stood firm. And I want to mention this man here who, who was mentioned in verse 13. Even in the days of Antipas. Now this man Antipas 
we don't have any information on, and this is the only place in the Bible he is mentioned. And he says, he is my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. So here's a man that stood up in the midst of satanic influence. And so they had already experienced extreme persecution. And this man was mentioned here that he died in the faith among the martyrs of that time. Sadly, though, the church was defiled and some had held on to the doctrines of Balaam, it says. Now, Balaam is no god. It is a false god. And he mentions here that it was Balaam who appealed to another false god, Balak, to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. And another thing that they did was eat sacrificial meat and engaged in sexual immorality. So here is an entire uh, sinful group and false gods. The Bible here is saying that some there hold on to the teachings of Balaam. I had to ask myself, what false teachings could churches be holding on to today? And while it's hard to pinpoint that it is Balaam, you might say, that false god, but it is at least the spirit of Balaam. It's a satanic spirit that it is possible for churches to be embracing in some kind of subtle way. Now, this is not often a very flagrant type of thing. It's more underlying and a very subtle type of thing. And then Jesus here points out that they had held on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now you might remember that back in the letter to Ephesus, Jesus pointed to them that they did not hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so that was a commendable thing to them. But here in Pergama, we have this church who is actually embracing some of the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Sexual immorality. And the Nicolaitans observed legalism. And they were placing some of their leaders up above all the rest of, of the, and they demanded a sort of, of allegiance to their leaders. How can churches today come to embrace things and tolerate things for the sake of unity with others who practice the same types of things? Now, I do think that as we have focused some on the the compromises that the Church of the Brethren denomination had been engaged in, we have lamented the fact that it seems like the denomination has aligned themselves with more thinking of secular society than they have kept strictly aligned with Scripture. 
And so we see a compromise here, and it doesn't sit well with us who want to stay aligned with Scripture completely and totally, no matter what the rest of society is doing. We don't want to blend in with the rest. And in strong wording, Jesus said he hates the practice of the Nicolaitans. Now, he didn't say he hated the Nicolaitans. He hated their practices. And that's what we strongly try to urge, too. It's not the people we hate. It is the sinful, compromising practices in the midst of the church. The church had indeed become liberal. This is what happened. When they're in a, a situation and they have outward influences to conform or otherwise be admonished. So in the midst of all the good work that the churches was doing, Jesus still pointed out that these types of compromises are not acceptable. And so verse 16 or 15 Verse 16, therefore repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword of his mouth? The word of God. You see, the uncompromising word of God. So when I see, for instance, the Covenant Brethren Church having their emphasis on the absolute inerrancy of Scripture, and the accountability of holding each other to God's word. To me, these are positive signs that the denomination and the churches of will are not going to let the outside surroundings and practices of other people influence. Jesus said, ask for repentance. Repentance is the act that rescues us from the darkest of sin. It is my prayer that all liberal churches might come to a place where they could recognize how they have basically drifted away from the truth of God's word. It's my prayer that they would clean their house and get back to honoring God. And then Jesus even ends this letter with a positive note. To him that overcomes. And what about these things that he will give? Well, the Bible says he will give hidden manna. That seems to be directly from the word of God. A feeding on God's word. Hidden manna. Maybe the world can't see it, but the Christians can. And then this white stone. There's a good bit of debate about the meaning of the white stone, it can mean a lot of different things. In a court during that time, if they were given a white stone, it meant basically that they were acquitted and were found not guilty. If they were given a black stone, then they were found guilty. Here Jesus says, I will give that person a white stone, which seems to mean not guilty or a victory. It seems to mean you have an identity with me as Christ. 
me, Christ. You have a white stone with, which identifies. Now there's also some debate about the name that is written on the stone. It could be the name of the person who is given a new name by Christ. But there are some who believe that this could be a name of Jesus himself that gives the believer a new identity with Christ himself. So we can't really know for sure what this new name is. It does seem to be a personal type of connection between the believer and Christ. Inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. I don't know what will be written on the white stone for sure, but I do know I want to receive one. I want to receive that from the Lord. What's all these letters to the churches mean to us today? Well, it seems like they are giving us glimpses of certain types of churches. And if we group them all together, we can sort of get a wide focus on what a church should be and actually a warning about what churches should not be. And we hope that we can align our church with Christ in a way to be pleasing to him. Let me pause and pray. Thank you, Lord, for this account of the church of Pergama. And while they lived in such a, a place of turmoil, it seems like Satan focused right on it. Maybe we can identify that in some ways it seems like Satan really is focusing upon society in our nation and where we live. And in the midst of that, we want to remain strong as a church, strong as an individual, not letting ourselves compromise in any way to the pressures of things that are around us. Let us stand firm on the Word of God, no matter what. And I pray here at Oakdale we can be an anchor to the truth of God's Word and that we might be a witness of Christ and His saving love to all people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.